0: If the only time you pray is when it's in a public setting, then there's something wrong with your prayer life. Jesus said, go into your inner room, close your door, and pray to your Father who's in secret. Our Father who's in secret is waiting, He's wanting, He's longing for us to come into His presence.
1: Hello and welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Baroghe. Dr. Brogy is senior pastor at Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. We're nearing the end of our study in the book of Romans. And today we begin our message closing out chapter 15 with a look at effective private and corporate prayer. Prayer admits that we can accomplish nothing worthwhile in our own strength. Let's find out more now as we join Dr. Brogy.
0: Would you take your Bibles please this morning and turn to Romans chapter 15. It's hard to believe we're approaching the end of this great letter. And when you come to the 15th chapter, you're just beginning to turn a corner into the conclusion of this great letter. And if you remember from last time, it's a very exceptional chapter of Scripture because it's one of the rare times in all the New Testament where the Apostle Paul speaks of himself. And he does so under the inspiration of the Spirit of God to help us. To teach us something about the greatness of his life and ministry and why God could so mightily use him. So let me just walk you into the context for a moment, whether you're here or sitting in our campus in Bluffton. We're glad for our Bluffton campus and all who are there reaching out in that community. Having told us what to believe, he is now speaking to us in this section of Romans on how we ought to behave. Because in Scripture, what you believe should determine how you behave, What you learn should be translated into your lifestyle. And it is true that very often Christians hear the word of God and they do very little with it. But Paul is not happy with that and certainly God is not either. So when you come to the 12th chapter of Romans, you come to the practical or the applicational section of Romans. If you remember, there are three major sections, the doctrinal, the national, and then the practical. And so when you come to chapters 12 through 16, he is applying all of the theology and doctrine and prophecy that he has been speaking of. And if you remember, I gave you three words with each of those three sections so that hopefully you can think your way all the way through the book of Romans. Not because God wants to make us smarter sinners, but because he wants to make us more like Jesus Christ. And then the book of Romans becomes a tool in your hand to not only help yourself, but to help those whom you disciple. There were three key words in this section. I hope by now you have them memorized. The first word was the word bond. And so he spoke first in Romans 12, 1 and 2 of our bond to God as a living sacrifice. And then in verses three through 16, he spoke of our bond to other Christians, that God has woven our lives together in a body We have gifts that depend upon one another for their proper function. And then he concludes that chapter with our bond to the world, that in relationship to unbelievers, we are to show respect and we're not to seek revenge. And by the way, this is precisely what the Lord Jesus does in John 15. He describes our relationship to the Lord, then our relationship to each other and then our relationship to the world. The second key word that I gave you, if you remember for the 13th chapter, was behavior. And so we first studied our behavior to the government, that we are to be submissive. Then we spoke of our behavior to our neighbor, that we are to love him and owe him no debt but to love. And then we spoke of our behavior towards ourselves, that we are to make no provision in regards to the sinful nature. Then the third word I gave you for this section, if you remember, it was the term brothers. We spoke in the 14th chapter of brothers who are weak. In the first half of the 15th chapter, brothers who are strong. And then last time we began with the second half of Romans 15, dealing with brothers who are to be. And that's why God, by the Spirit of God, gives us some insight into Paul's life. Because if you know Paul, He rarely ever speaks of himself in the 13 New Testament letters that he gave us. But he does speak in this portion of scripture because he wants us to understand some of the secrets, that it's no mystery, that it really is no secret as to why and how God can use another person. If you were here last time, we saw first his priestly ministry. And every Christian is a believer priest. God has given you a ministry within the body, and also outside of the church. When we gather, we're strengthened so that when we're scattered through the community, we can be a bright and shining testimony. We saw also that he had a powerful ministry. And certainly, he did some unique things as an apostle. But the same Holy Spirit who lived and filled Paul's life can live in you and fill your life as well. And then we saw that he had a pioneering ministry. Paul wanted to go not to those who simply already named the name of Christ, but those who had not yet met him. And that's what we've always been about as a church by the grace of God. Certainly, that happens through hundreds of missionaries we sponsor monthly. But it also happens in this community we're not interested in stealing sheep from another church if someone's in a good solid bible believing church i'll say to that person stay there support the pastor pray for that church if you're in a good healthy church stay there but we are far more interested also in reaching the goats we want to reach those who have never met Jesus Christ and help them to understand their forgiveness. 80% of the people in this county this morning, over 80% of the people in this state will not be in church anywhere. And so God has given us a commission. Now we come to the fourth dimension of this man's life, and it really deals with a prayer ministry. And it really is the answer to why all the other three work so powerfully so that's what we're going to study today we want to begin reading in verse 30 i hope you brought a bible if you don't have one talk to me i would like to be able to give you one i know some of you have been to churches where you don't need a bible and unfortunately that's standard fare for our day but bring a Bible to church, you're going to learn so much more, and you're going to grow in your relationship with the Lord. Romans chapter 15, beginning in verse 30. Now I urge you, brethren, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers to God for me, that I may be rescued from those who are disobedient in Judea, and that my service for Jerusalem may prove acceptable to the saints so that I may come to you in joy by the will of God and find refreshing rest in your company. Now the God of peace be with you all. Amen. Andrew Murray, the great reformed preacher of the last century, said God works only in answer to our prayers. And then he said, it is in prayer that we change our natural strength for the supernatural strength of God. Dr. R.A. Torrey, who in 1889 was the president of Moody Bible Institute and the pastor at the same time of Moody Church, said this, Nothing lies beyond the reach of prayer except that which lies beyond the will of God. In a similar statement, in the 19th century, the great English Methodist preacher Samuel Chadwick said this, The one concern of the devil is to keep Christians from praying. He fears nothing from prayerless studies, prayerless work, and prayerless religion. He laughs at our toil. He mocks at our wisdom, but He trembles when we pray. Do you know what I want for Community Bible Church more than anything else? That we be a people of prayer. That nothing could be explained here apart from prayer, because I believe that when God puts His supernatural hand on a local assembly, then He receives all the honor. And if you've ever done a study on the life of Christ from the Gospels, you know that prayer was high on his list of priorities. Many times the disciples would come and they would find him praying. There's a little interesting verse that Luke records in Luke 5 16. We read there, but Jesus himself would often slip away to the wilderness and pray. Now, if the Lord Jesus, who had unbroken fellowship with the Father, needed to pray, then what must your need be? What must my need be? So high on his priority list was prayer that he would often slip away to pray. We have that oft-quoted verse, you do not have because you do not ask. Some of you this morning are struggling in a relationship. It might be the person sitting next to you. And you've thought about it. You've talked about it to yourself, to other people. You've struggled. You've manipulated. You've maneuvered. But you have not prayed. And some of you have prayed, but you have not prayed in faith. You've prayed not really expecting God to be able to do anything. And so he hasn't done anything because you really haven't come in faith. So how do we as individuals pray in faith? And how do we pray not just as individuals, but corporately as a church? What are the dimensions of effective corporate prayer? One day, the disciples came to the Lord Jesus, and they found Him praying, which precipitated a question. They said, Lord, teach us how to pray. And so He responded to them, pray then in this way, our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Not my Father who is in heaven, but our Father who is in heaven, because he wanted to teach them something about corporate prayer. In the same way, Paul is going to teach us something about corporate prayer. And there are three truths that he's going to underscore. If you're new, there's a note-taking outline. You might want to jot down a few thoughts for further reflection. First, I want us to see that effective prayer is corporate in nature. It's corporate in nature. Notice, if you will now, verse 30. Now I urge you, brethren, by our Lord Jesus, because Jesus taught corporate prayer. So I urge you, brethren, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to strive together with me in your prayers to God for me. Now, this pronoun, you, is plural. Sometimes you're not always sure when you read the English text, unless you're reading the old King James, because in Old English, they had a singular you and a plural you. This is plural, and that's obvious from the context, because he uses a plural noun, brethren, and he speaks of your prayers. In other words, he's not asking just one Christian to pray. He's asking the entire church at Rome to pray. And please note that this apostle is not sharing his prayer request with just anyone. He's sharing it with the brethren, those who have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Now certainly, God is gracious and kind and merciful to both the lost and the saved. Jesus affirmed that in the Sermon on the Mount when he said, He, meaning the Father, causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. The Bible is clear that God is kind not just to those who are His, but also to those who are not His, to those who are lost. But with that said, while God certainly can answer the prayer of an unbeliever, some Christians say God never answers the prayer of an unbeliever except the prayer made in salvation. That's wrong. That's not true biblically. I can give you examples where God answers the prayer of an unbeliever. In fact, most of the admonitions in Scripture that we tend to dump on unbelievers don't apply to them. They apply to God's people. If I regard iniquity, not if I sin, but if I hold on to sin, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord does not hear. Your sin has made a separation between you and your God so that He does not hear. Many of the warnings of God not hearing are actually given to his people. But I will say this, all of the promises in scripture, apart from calling upon Christ for salvation, what we often call the sinner's prayer, all of the promises in prayer are given to his people. It is God's people that have the promise of direct access to the throne of grace that we might find help in time of need. Hold your finger here, would you, and turn to the book of 1 John. If you're new to the Bible, just go to the last book, Revelation, and right before the Revelation, you'll find four little short books. John wrote the Revelation. He also wrote First, Second, and Third John, and then the half-brother of the Lord, because they did not have the same father. Jesus didn't have a human father. Jude wrote the little short book of Jude. I want you to turn to 1 John chapter 5. John wrote five books in the New Testament. The Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and the Revelation. 1st John chapter 5. And this morning I'm going to make you work just a little bit. We're going to use uh, this text in Romans as our launching pad. And we'll look at parallel passages, letting the Scripture interpret itself. Look now, if you will, at verse 11. And the testimony is this that God has given us, we don't earn it. God gives us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. In God's economy, there is no middle ground. You can't be half saved or three-quarters saved. You're either saved or you are not. You're either a saint or an ape. You're a sheep or a goat. There's no middle ground in Scripture. And if you're here this morning, and in your heart there's some uncertainty... As to whether or not you're going into heaven if there's doubt in the back of your mind if you're thinking well i'd like to go to heaven i think i'm going to heaven i certainly want to go to heaven but you don't know if you've read much of the new testament then you know that you will not go until you come to that place of assurance and so this is very important to god because god wishes that none should perish but that all should come to repentance now look at verse 13 these things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. What things? He gives five clear, specific admonitions in his first letter that are marks of genuine conversion. And he is saying, in essence, if these things are true of you, then you have the real banana. You don't have a false assurance. You can have a true assurance that you indeed have eternal life. And you don't have to wonder You don't have to think the scripture says you can know that you're saved. Now look at the promise for corporate prayer in verse 14. This is the confidence which we have before him that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us and whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked from him. Now, of course, in the context, the pronouns here we and us are to those who are born again Christians. And so we find like promises in the gospel. In Matthew 18, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth about anything that they may ask, it shall be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. Here's the point. There is power in corporate prayer, when God's people get together. And this church ought to be an enclave of prayer. We should all open every meeting we have in prayer. Whether it's a group of deacons getting together, a group of elders, whether it's the Awana ministry, whether it's a Bible study, whether it's VBS workers, we need to pray. The We need to pray. The engine that this church needs to run on is an engine of prayer. Now don't lose Romans 15 turn back now to the gospel of Matthew chapter 6 Matthew chapter 6 Matthew chapters 5 6 and 7 are what we often refer to the Sermon on the Mount that was the title St. Augustine gave this portion of Scripture in the fourth century and for whatever reason it has stuck in Matthew chapter 6 if you know that chapter the Lord highlights three Christian disciplines that when done in secret We are rewarded by our Father in heaven. What's interesting about these three disciplines, giving, fasting, and praying, is that there is a public expression of all three in the New Testament. So these are things that are not not done exclusively in secret. They can also be done publicly. And so the church prays all together in, in Acts 4. They fast all together in Acts 13. There is a public expression of giving at the end of Acts chapter 4. But Jesus in each of these disciplines also expected us to do them secretly in private, not to be seen by men, but to be seen by our Father in heaven. And with each of these disciplines, he doesn't say if you give, if you fast, if you pray, but when you give, when you fast, when you pray, he takes it for granted that God's people will do this. Look now at verse 5. When you pray, you are not to be like the hypocrites, like the play actors, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners so that they may be seen by men. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. Now, will you please notice, verse 5 says, they love to stand and pray. You might want to underline or circle that word love in your text. You see, the problem is not that they do not love prayer, nor that they, do, nor that they love the God to whom they're praying. The problem is that they love the praise and approval of men. That's the point of the passage. They love to be seen by men. Now, there was nothing wrong with standing when they prayed. In fact, there are several instances in the Scripture where you see some of God's choices, men and women, who are standing when they pray. In fact, the typical posture even to this day for a Jewish man when he prays is to pray standing with lifted arms. You go to the Western Wall and you won't see a single Jewish rabbi or Orthodox Jew or conservative or Reformed Jew or any other kind of Jew on his knees. They'll all be standing with uplifted arms very often. Paul tells us to pray that way, even today in the church. First Timothy 2.8, Therefore I want the men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. Now it is true that it's generic there, I want men... Because he's dealing in this passage of Scripture with men leading in the church. It's not an exclusion for women to pray because there are other passages like 1 Corinthians 14 that plainly teach that women should also pray in the church. But very often when a man would raise his hands or a woman, they did so in submission. And he's asking the men to take the leadership. Why? Because the church can easily be feminized if God's men sit on their hands and don't take their responsibility. Someone called me on the Bible line recently and they said, well, I'm in a church and there's no one who is willing to teach the Sunday school class. It's not all women, it's all, not all men. It's a mixed group of men and women together and none of the men are willing to do it. And I know Paul says that a woman is not to teach or exercise authority over men. Should I teach? Absolutely not. The women should say, men, step up to the plate and serve, be a man but you don't usurp their authority. And you see, in liberalism, in liberal Protestantism today, we've reversed the roles, and we wonder why the church is being feminized, and we wonder why in so many of these liberal denominations, so many young boys are coming out homosexual. We're feeding the problem in liberal theology, and now we have invited the problem into the evangelical church because we are reversing roles. God is a lot smarter and a lot wiser than us And if all of a sudden we see something in 2,000 years of church history that no one else has seen, and all of a sudden now Paul has been a homophobic person, and all of a sudden he was a repressive person, and we need to let women be pastors. Listen, we are doing a great disservice to God when we do that. So he says, I want men to pray. Take the initiative. Women should pray at a Wednesday night service, but if it's all women, we got a problem, guys. Men should take the initiative. Men should lead in prayer. Now, there was nothing wrong with the, a Pharisee praying in the synagogue. the assembly for that matter there was nothing wrong with a Pharisee praying on the street corner hundreds of pastors gathered yesterday in Columbia to pray for our state and to pray for the fact that we want marriage to be one man and one woman until death separates them that that is God's ideal and that we're not going to bend on that nothing wrong with taking your prayer into the public spectrum unless you are doing it to be seen by men for the applause of men It's like the young lawyer who had just gone into business. He hung out his shingle at his brand new office, hoping and waiting for the first client. All of a sudden, he heard someone walking down the corridor and he thought, I need to impress this person. So he he picked up the telephone with no one else on the other end and he had a mock conversation. Yes, uh, I'm sorry, you know, my, my corporation schedule is so heavy, I don't think I'll be able to see you this week. Uh huh, uh huh. Yeah, well, um, you know, my two secretaries are sick today, but if you'll call my wife, I mean my secretary, uh, next week, I'm sure we could set up an appointment. Maybe I can squeeze you in at the end of the week. Uh huh, uh huh. Okay, thank you very much. He hangs up the phone. Man walks up to his desk. Said, sir, I'm here from the telephone company to hook up your phone. (laughs) That's the kind of prayer that many of us are expressing. Talking to God where no one else is listening. Simply to be praying to be seen by men. And so what the Lord Jesus is doing here is He is uncovering the true motivation of the Pharisee. The one who in the restaurant or in the street corner is praying only to be seen by men. Only for their applause. And Jesus said, yes, they've received their reward in full. All the reward they are going to get. The praise and applause of men. But look at verse six, the very first word I have circled. It's the word but. It indicates a contrast. But, but you, when you pray, go into your inner room, close your door, and pray to your father who's in secret, and your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. See, the real test of your prayer life is not what you do on a Wednesday night or in some adult Bible fellowship in some public prayer meeting, but what you do in your private experience. And unfortunately, Phariseeism is far from dead. The religious Pharisee prayed not to worship the living God, but to gain a reputation for himself. One Wednesday night years ago, I said, look, if you have not had some time alone since Sunday... Just you and God. Then don't come up here and pray. And Nobody came, which I'm thankful. But I was not thankful that none of us are praying. You need a place. I don't care if it's in your home or your office or your car. You need some place where you can shut out the entire world. And if you really want to know what your prayer life is like, you start with your private prayer life. If the only time you pray is when it's in a public setting, then there's something wrong with your prayer life. Jesus said, go into your inner room, close your door, and pray to your Father who's in secret. Our Father who's in secret is waiting, He's wanting, He's longing for us to come into His presence. And so our prayer is to be, in one respect, done in secret. Just like our giving, just like our fasting. Again, there's public expressions of all three, but it starts in our prayer life. And so the Lord is trying to purify our motives, but he doesn't stop there. The only sin in prayer is not simply hypocrisy, also sometimes the way we pray. Look, if you will, in verse 7, in the counsel he gives, and when you are praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do, for they suppose they will be heard for their many words. Meaningless repetition. It's one word that means literally to stammer or to babble in the original. So he's changing gears. He's talking about another abusive prayer. And so while hypocrisy is one abuse of prayer that diverts glory from God to man, verbosity is another abuse of prayer where through the recitation of repeated words, we think that somehow we're going to move the hand of God. Don't pray like the Gentiles. We saw last week that the term ethnos, ethnoi here, uh, can be used of Gentiles who are just non-Jews or it's used as a synonym for pagans. In fact, some of the newer translations don't literally translate it. They just say, don't pray like the pagans. But that's the thought. Don't pray like a pagan. Now, God's not against repeated prayer. Jesus himself three times in the Garden of Gethsemane repeated his prayer and he left, Matthew 26 records, and he left them again and went away and prayed a third time, saying the same thing once more. So he's not against repeated prayer, nor is he against persevering prayer, but he is against prayer without thinking, where we are all lips and no heart. When I was a child, I used to pray the rosary. I had a set of rosary beads. I still have them. I don't use them anymore, but I have them as a reminder of what God saved me from. And I would take these beads, you know, Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus, holy Mary, mother of God. Pray for our sinners, now and the hour of our death. Amen. Next bead, Hail Mary, full of grace, and on and on and on and on and on. Not only was it meaningless repetition, I was also praying to someone I should not be praying to. We are to pray to God and to God alone.
1: To listen again to today's message from Romans 15 entitled Effective Corporate Prayer, download the Search the Scriptures app for smartphones and tablets or visit us online at searchthescriptures.org. You can also order it on CD or DVD by calling Search the Scriptures at 877-787-7478 and requesting program ROM71. And when you contact us, why not help support Search the Scriptures as we seek to teach what God's Word says about living a life that is pleasing to God. You can either give online at searchthescriptures.org or simply call us at 877-787-7478. Thank you. Tomorrow, Dr. Brogy's wife, Audrey, is in this time slot with her program for women, Mothering from the Heart. And you can hear more of Audrey's messages on the Search the Scriptures app found in the iTunes Store and Google Play Store. And then Monday we'll continue our message, Effective Corporate Prayer. Join us then as we search the Scriptures.